Well, good morning to you, Chapel Point. Um, what I'd like to do uh, first is, I need to tell you a quick story. I had a mom run up to me beforehand, and she goes, well, we're here at church for the first time ever on Memorial Day. We know a lot of people go camping and everything. And I said, well, that's great. She's like, well, I need to confess something to you. I said, well, I'm not a priest, but go ahead. She says, well, we're here because um, I really only wanted to spend one night in the tent, so I told them we had to go to church on Sunday. Like, really? Whatever gets you to worship God, I don't know. If you have served this country, um, would you please stand right now? I'd like to thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, I pray for these individuals who have served this country, I know many of them well. And I know that they really serve this country because they want the freedom of worshiping you. And so, Lord, may we do all we can to protect that freedom of worshiping you. I feel like so often, God, today we're fighting for a different type of freedom But there is nothing greater than knowing that we can declare the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I tell you what, I missed you last week. I was able to speak at a conference up in Connecticut. And I missed being here in this place and worshiping with each one of you. Uh, We're in a series right now called Conquer, in case you're visiting with us And the reason we're in this series called Conquer is we're looking at the the messages to the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, And you can go ahead and open up there this morning. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is is where we find those seven messages to those churches. Uh, It's important for us to be able to walk through this series. And we call it Conquer because every single time after every message, he says, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers conquers, to the one who overcomes, Um, and then he gives us a promise uh, to those individuals. And we're reminded as we look at these messages that we can conquer persecution in the name of Jesus Christ. He is going to do that one day completely for everyone. We can conquer, if you go back a couple of weeks ago to Ephesus, we can conquer indifference. Today we're talking about idols because we're looking at Pergamum. Uh, and this is a place that is very, very unique, very, very different. In fact, it was 133 years before the birth of Jesus Christ that you have uh, the leader of Pergamum surrendering to Rome in order to prevent a civil war. So there he is, 133 years before Jesus Christ, he's surrendering to the Roman Empire in order to prevent a civil war, and it was a pretty prestigious place. They loved their knowledge. They loved their education. They had the second largest library at that time in the world. And so they had a lot of knowledge that they would gather for themselves. And it's a really interesting place also because it was a legal center. It was a legal center. and It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And actually, that was until the close of the first century. So for roughly about 250 years there. Um, And so... Here we find this, this place, um, if Ephesus would have been New York City, I want you to think Pergamum, I want you to think Washington, D.C., all right? 
it's, it's just this valuable place in terms of the people who are there, the leaders who are there. And we're diving into looking at this message that was written to them. So let's begin with Revelation chapter 2, 12 and 13. We'll get into the rest of the verses later on. Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 13. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we know a lot about Pergamum. We're going to dive in uh, even more to that in just a moment. But here he's writing and he's already commending them. That's how he begins all but one of the letters to these churches, by commending them, by encouraging them, reminding them, hey, here are some things that you're doing well. Here are some things that, that's really encouraging. Here he is in verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, what is that two-edged sword? Um, many think that this two-edged sword stands for judgment. They think that it's standing for judgment. The sword in the Old Testament, but also um, in apocalyptic literature, often symbolized judgment. Other people think that this two-edged sword, more appropriately, is the Roman governor's kind of mentality. The reason I say that is because the Roman governor could use his right of the sword to send Christians to their death. You think about Pilate's statement to Jesus, that he had the power to free him or crucify him. And so many think that this is, with under the Roman Empire, this is that judgment of saying, I can give you life or I can give you death. Other people think that this two-edged sword is about the word. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. That's Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. So here he is, he's riding with this two-edged sword, this, this sense of maybe it's judgment, maybe it's this power of the word of God that's living and active, maybe it's his reminder to the people, listen, I have the power over you for life and death, which are you going to choose? He then jumps in and says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. That's his commendation here. That you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. During this time period, Antipas is important to pull out because the church history tells us that he was actually martyred and he was killed in an iron kettle. Literally, that's how he was martyred, for his faith. And even in the midst of them persecuting Christians, uh, they would not deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're being commended for that. And once you have one precedent before you, one person, Antipas here, is being martyred for his faith in this iron kettle. Once that happens just one time, what begins to then unfold is an anticipation or an expectation of that happening again. And so people begin to pull back. You know, we talk about the freedom that we have in this country because of these individuals who have fought for this country. And we think about the spiritual freedom that we have in this country as well. But friends, it will only take one or two people for things to change course. 
It'll only take one or two people to be crucified and killed in this country for their faith, even though we know there's nearly 100,000 people every year that are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ in this world. And all of a sudden, you've, you've set a new precedence for what can happen, for what can take place. The word martyr is translated in the Greek word meaning to witness. And so when he says a witness for Christ, it often means that even though you are a witness for Christ, it means that you will end up being a martyr for Christ. That's what was taking place during this time period. That's, that's what was happening. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So here's Pergamum. It's a city that had surrendered to the Roman Empire. At this point, roughly, you're going to say, uh, nearly 200 years prior. And so here they are, um, maybe 220 or so. They've surrendered to the Roman Empire, and now there's this, this, this legal epicenter. It's where they gain all this knowledge, this huge library. He's talking about how they didn't deny their faith, but here's this Christian martyr. And there's just something not right. There's something that's just off-center when you start speaking about Pergamum. And he's going to address that. He says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And then it says the following, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who was killed among you where now that when I'm reading through this, this is one of those parts of the passage that just jumps out at me. Where Satan dwells. Like, hey, good job. You've been doing this. Even though this is where Satan dwells. You, it makes you wake up. It makes you go, wait a second. I, I thought that we were doing a good job. We've endured. We've held fast to the name of Christ. And now... He's letting us know that this is where Satan dwells. You see, Pergamon was this uncontested center of pagan worship. It was the center of pagan worship in all of Asia Minor. And there were, there were temples to gods everywhere. I mean, literally, so you drive through Jenison and Hudsonville. You drive through this entire region, Byron Center, it doesn't matter, Zealand. And you just see church after church. For the most part, though, the majority of the churches believe the same thing, don't we? I mean, for the most part, you, you look at the center, four or five crucial things about who God is and about the Trinity and about the virgin birth and about salvation through faith alone. The majority of them are going to go yes, yes, and yes. Now, there are some other differences, but here, when you're going through Pergamum, you have temple after temple, kind of like here, you have church after church. Right? And the difference is they, they believe different things. They're worshiping different gods. They're worshiping different gods, and you're just driving by, or you, 
You're walking by and you're looking at all of this and you're going, wait a second, Satan dwells there because there's temples to so many different gods. You see, that's Satan's goal. Satan's goal is really just to blind you from the truth. Satan's goal is to distract you enough so that you don't even recognize that you're not serving Jesus. That's, that's one of his primary tactics. Hey, if I can just, if I can let them think that they're actually worshiping who they think they're worshiping, but they're not, and just distract them enough, get their eyes off center enough, perfect. Right? That's what we always say. This is what's happened, you know. If this is being close to God, Satan's way over there. How many times have we seen this? Satan's goal is not to rip you from this place and just throw you over there all he wants to do is what get you to take one little step closer to him that's all he wants to do and that's what was happening in Pergamum they kept taking steps away from God more and more just these small steps and so as a result all of a sudden before you know it you can't deny anybody of any right, and so you have temples to every single God that you can imagine. I mean, even it says where Satan's throne is, uh, at the beginning of, of verse 13 there, where Satan's throne is. We're talking about where Satan dwells. It's saying, listen, you've given the throne, which is where the master of a house sits, Right? You know what I'm talking about. Like you've got your, you've got your lazy boy chair. Maybe that's where the, the master of the house sits. For me, I don't have one. And you've got that place where the master sits. You know what I'm talking about that. You know what I'm talking about that because it's, it's looking at who really is king and lord of a certain place. And he's saying, you've given the throne away. You've given the throne away. And so you have to ask yourself, have you given the throne of your house away to an idol, to a false god, to something, anything other than Jesus Christ? Have you given it away? What a a great way to think about it. Have you given away the authority of your house to something else? Have you given it away? If Satan is dwelling there, I think one of the most disturbing thoughts that I've had in preparing this message is that Satan probably felt at home there. Like he was comfortable there. I don't think he had any fear of being removed from being in a place of worship, of being worshipped. Is Satan comfortable where he sits in your life because he feels no threat of being removed? Right? Verse 14 and 15. He does say this as he dives in about Satan dwelling in this place. He says, I have a few things against you. And a reminder for you, they had kept their faith in the midst of even seeing someone martyred, someone killed for their faith. 
but you have some there teaching, of, uh, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You've held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and I even spoke about that with Ephesus, talking about the same group of people. I have a few things against you. What, what are these things that you have against us? And again, it's talking about all of these idols that they're worshiping. Listen, they had an altar to Zeus that was just enormous. It's the largest altar that's ever been found in the world. I think we can see a picture of that possibly. Um, here it is. It's the largest. That's an, this right here is an altar. That's an altar. Here's our altar. Right? And they're movable. I can push them out of the way. That's their altar to Zeus. And you go down, you just travel down the street a little bit, you can find a different temple to a different God that they were worshiping. It's an, it's an altar. It's, it's a giant horseshoe-shaped throne that was an altar to Zeus. And they kept fire burning there 24 hours a day. They had become distracted. Another picture for you to be able to see is looking at another temple. Dionysus was another god that they worshipped. And here is this, this huge theater that they constructed for this god. Why? Because he was the god of theater and wine. And so they constructed this enormous theater to the God of theater and wine. That's the energy that they would pour in to worshiping a false God. Here's, the, here's a crucial question for us is what type of energy do we pour into worshiping Jesus Christ? I mean, they've so much energy, so many resources. You can see the theater there on the left, and it's looking down over the entire th valley there. And they've poured so much energy, so much time, so much resources into it. How much of that are we pouring in to honoring, worshiping God in our own life? What are we really contributing to worshiping who He is? He's talking about all of these false gods. He's talking about food being sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Now he's talking, he, he, I love the fact that he lumps those two things together. A lot of times we take sexual immorality and we kind of put it in its own classification. Listen, what has happened is sexual immorality, sexual temptation, and lust today has become a god to us. It's become an idol. It's truly become an idol for us. So I, I appreciate the fact that here it's being lumped together. But I'll give you, so you, you already saw pictures of the, the temples and the types of altars that they would construct here in Pergamum. Um, I want to show you some of the idols and the temples that we've built today. Um, if, if we could show a picture here. You got a nice boat there, a nice home, soccer. Uh, I've got, I got, got some kids. Go ahead. I'll go ahead and tell you, that looks very similar to my life. I mean, I don't have the boat, but a lot of you do, so I just get to use yours. Hello. That's called a good life. 
I have my own pool. It's just I don't own it. My neighbors do. All right? This weekend, my daughter is in Detroit playing what? Soccer. She couldn't play on the travel team, so we let her play on the team that gets that they travel twice a year. This is the weekend. She's already called, she's already played a soccer game this morning at 7 a.m. She won. It's a good day. And I'm just going, you know, what, what are we doing? Like, this is, con- like, we've already had this conversation. We had this conversation before they left for the weekend. And we're always talking about this. And we're trying to figure it out. Like, what's the right balance of owning different homes, of, of having boats and playing soccer and traveling? And I'm sitting here talking to you because I'm struggling with it. I think we all struggle with it. But it's a very slippery slope. And Pergamum did not recognize the slippery nature of the slope. And as a result... Satan lived there and was very comfortable in sitting on the throne of that city because he had no pressure, no resistance, no type of threat of being removed from his place in that city. And I think the most dangerous part is when you get to a place that you no longer have a concern about having anything in your life that becomes an idol. When we no longer have the conversation, you're in a bad place to me. We need to always monitor it. We talk about the healthy tension a lot in leadership here. And we talk about the guitar string, right? If a guitar string is too loose, it doesn't do anything, it doesn't play. If it's too tight, what happens? It snaps. You need to have the healthy tension of having the conversations about what the idols are in our life. You need to have the healthy conversation. Does this mean too much to us? And we all have different idols. For some of us, it is the sexual immorality. For some of us, it's the boat. Like, that's all we, we check out for three months. That's why I'm begging people this summer. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I, great, wonderful. I love the fact that I just had a family come in and say, listen, we were, we were out of town for a couple of weeks, but we got to watch you online. It was great. Thanks so much that the church has that kind of influence. That's, that's fine. Just don't check out from God for three months. And then say that you don't have an idol? Don't check out from being in a relationship with the Almighty God for three months and say that you don't have an idol. And everybody's got to find that right place for themselves. But don't be naive to it. Because it's a slope that you start to fall down. And you can't stop, it seems. Listen, here's the thing. We become, here's why it's so dangerous. We become what we love the most. We become what we love the most. If you take anything from today, take this. We become what we love the most. Right? It, can be, it can be anything. You name it. You become that because maybe that's where you spend the majority of your time or you spend the majority of your resources or it's what you get your family to automatically do. We become what we love the most and so whatever your idols are is what you start to become. For some of you, it's, you, you always talk about the illustration of sports, right? We, we speak about that because you put all your money there, you put all your time there, you put all your energy there and all of a sudden people can look at you and go, oh, you're a sports fanatic, aren't you? And you go, oh, yeah, I am, right? And it can be any team, it doesn't matter if it's in this state or if it's out of this state. It, it can be any of that. For some of you, it's work. For some, because it's money, 
and you just want to make sure that you have enough to make you content. I remember when I first got married, my wife, I was a youth minister, and uh, oh man, I looked at my wife, and she was really praying to marry money, and she didn't. One of, our, one of our conversations when we started getting serious, it had been like two weeks since I met her. I knew right away I was going to marry this woman. And I just looked at her and I said, wow. And um, I said, and she loves the Lord. This is just a good thing. And so it was awesome. But I was, I was talking to her. I was like, let's talk about money. Like, how much do you need to have in the bank? How much do we think we would want to have in the bank to feel good? And we're like, thousand bucks? That'd be pretty good. I was like, oh, a thousand bucks. Well, we got a thousand dollars. And then all of a sudden I recognized thousand dollars doesn't do a whole lot. So then we're like, okay, five grand. Five, if we can have five thousand dollars, we'll be rolling, even if we have kids. That's like nothing, right? Well, then we had a kid. And then Nick you for the first week, 70K, boom, right? So I sold platelets every day for a year and a half, right? Now, and then all of a sudden you go, well, maybe it's 10 grand, and then it's 20 grand, and you just keep going and going. People with 100 grand, they go, it's a 200 grand. And then people with 500 grand, they go, it's a million. And it just keeps going. Why? Because it's a slippery slope. And you have to make that decision for yourself, but to not be having the conversation is wrong. Because we have so many idols in our life, and we just kind of we ignore them. And because we're ignoring them, Satan's sitting on that throne just going, yeah, this, is, this is fun to watch. They don't even know that I'm sitting here. This is perfect. That's what's happening in Pergamum. They don't even get it. Hosea chapter 9 talks about the people of Israel becoming as vile as the things that they loved. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. The people of Israel were becoming as vile as the things that they loved. Listen, the heart of God is to release you. The heartbeat of God is to release you from anything that hinders you knowing God more deeply. And if you've given the throne to anything other than him, you don't know God well. If you've placed anything in front of God, which means if you have any greater priority, you have an idol and you've become distracted. You've become, you're, you're going to be led astray and you don't even know that you're being led astray. But that's how Satan works. He just wants to distract you enough. He distracted these people. And so they just started worshiping all different types of God. Here's one I hear all the time. Well, you know, I'm just in a season of life right now where I'm just very, very busy. But I'm going to plug into the word um, once this season dies down. Maybe some of you have thought that to yourself. Or, you know, I'm in a season of life right now. I'm just, I'm going to plug into church and try to discover more of who God is later on. But right now, I'm slammed at work. And I'm preoccupied with trying to maintain and keep all the kids. And so we just start, we start to justify. We start to make excuses. It's a slippery slope. We've become distracted. People say, well, I'm just too busy. I can't wait for you 
to face God and for God to say, what's been going on? And you just go, I'm sorry, I've just been too busy with the temporary things. But those are some of those idols that the people of Pergamum that we are struggling with. I learned a long time ago, it was probably my first church, before I even met my wife, that the credibility of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is, is dependent upon how you live your life as a proclaimed disciple. And it's really tough to teach people and to preach and to live a life of worshiping Jesus Christ when you're not at least asking the questions for yourself if you've surrendered the throne of your house to a false god. You've got to remember other churches that have already been addressed they were, Ephesus, they were doing everything the right way. Like they, they were doing church. That's how we would say it today. They were doing church, and yet God still says, no, you're still doing it wrong, though, because you're not doing it with the love and a passion for me. You're so critical of everybody else and everything else. You've missed the mark. You've lost your first love. And now he's running to this city, Pergamum, and he's going, don't you understand? You're worshiping everything except for me. Every single person is transformed into an image of their God. Right? You start wearing their clothes and everything else. If you're not too careful, it doesn't mean, listen, I'm not saying if you wear a Michigan t-shirt or a Michigan State t-shirt that that's wrong. I'm not saying that. But all of a sudden, if that's all you're being decked out in, you've got to at least ask the question, Am I, is this an idol for me? Do I have as much joy in my life without them as I do with them? You at least have to ask the question. When all of your energy and all of your time is spent fixing and dressing up your home, and so you ignore your kids, maybe it's an idol. Now, that's not my problem. The last couple of days, I decided I needed to power wash because I could see the, just the clumps of dirt falling off the side. I had no idea how dirty my house was. And so then I start doing the driveway. Power washing is very dangerous because once you do one little area, the worst, the, everything else looks so bad. Right? So I had Bennett out there power washing and uh, my five-year-old. No, I, yesterday... You know, my, my, my girl, my three girls are out of town. I've got the boys here with me. Carson was with another friend swimming at, at a club. And there's Bennett. I walk into the garage, and he's just sitting in the middle of the garage by himself with no toys or anything. And he just goes, Dad, will you play with me sometime today? Father failure. I put the power washer down, and we went for a nice bike ride. We had some candy. Don't tell mom. A lot of candy. <laughs> Is there, it was a one-pound bag of Twizzlers. We ate the whole thing. It's no big deal. Because uh, well, uh, we can get distracted. 
It's not wrong to power wash your house, but what it is wrong is if all of a sudden I'm being so consumed with taking care of a house that I'm not doing my God-given right and responsibility of taking care of my son. You see, we get distracted. So this isn't about, oh, he said it's bad to power wash or take care of my house. No, but when that's priority over worshiping Jesus, anything that has priority over worshiping Jesus is sinful. Like, we're ignoring it. I'm just wanting us today to not ignore it anymore. All these false gods that we spend so much time worshiping, and we don't even know we're doing it, and Satan's on the throne just going, look at them. Those yahoos, they have no clue. They have no idea what they've done. This is perfect. They're just chasing their tails, yelling at God, for not doing things the way they want things done when they're not even really worshiping God. This is perfect. And so he tells them what to do as a result. Verse 16, he says, therefore, this is what he always does. He says, repent. Don't we love starting conversations like that with people? Hey, this is what you need to do. You need to repent. I do. I love it. Most of us don't, but I enjoy it because that means you can get right with God. And when you're getting right with God, there's a victory to be had and a joy that is discovered. Therefore, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you soon. I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit of God is telling you. It's saying to the churches, to the one who conquers I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. I'm going to give you a white stone, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now I want to explain some of this. He's saying to repent. Turn away. We know what that is. 180 degrees. Turn away from any type of false idol you have and start moving toward God. And then he tells them, this is what you're going to get as a result. This is what's going to happen is, is first of all, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna, right? John 6, 51, the manna that is given from heaven, the living bread that came down from heaven. He's talking about the fact that he gives the bread of life that is eternal. It's not temporary. And he's going to give that to you. Don't you understand how wonderful that is? You will never be hungry spiritually again. It's that imperishable manna. So he tells them, repent, turn toward me. Stop worshiping all of these false idols, all these false gods. And turn to me, repent of those things, and I'm going to give you the bread of life. And then he says, also, not only the manna, but I'm going to give him a white stone. Now in an ancient courtroom, this is what jurors used to do. They would condemn the accused by tossing a black stone or they would acquit them by tossing a white stone. Like Literally, they would have a black one and a white one. And if a juror thought that someone was guilty, they would throw the black one. If they thought they were innocent, they would throw the what? White one. Just seeing if you're paying attention. You weren't. It's okay. This is cool though. Black or white? Black or white? I'm going to give you the white stone. And so he's telling them, I'm going to give you the white stone. Listen, here's the joy. We've been acquitted. He's thrown the white stone. You know that's good. 
Now, here's the only reason that people don't celebrate more when they recognize that Jesus Christ, has, he's been the white stone for us, is because maybe you don't think you have anything to be delivered from. You don't think anything needs to pay the debt for your sinfulness, for your wrong in life, for the things that you have done that are not fair, that are not just, that are not godly, that are not holy. You really don't think you need the help. Because of all the idols in our society today, I am convinced the reason that knowing that Jesus Christ was the white stone acquitting us, we have been acquitted the only reason I can really try to process for, for why we're not worshiping and praising God more is because we really don't think that we need him. You do. You see, the people of Pergamon, they were becoming like the things that they loved. And they stopped recognizing that they needed repentance. They needed salvation. They needed Jesus Christ. They didn't get it. And so as a result of that, they didn't understand. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 5, just... I'm just going to mention the first verse. Colossians 3 tells us that we need to set our hearts on things above. They were unwilling to set their hearts on things above because they didn't recognize, they didn't acknowledge that they needed to be saved. You need saving, and the good news is Jesus has saved you. the struggle we're having. Nobody thinks they've ever done anything wrong, and if they have done something wrong, they think they're okay because there's always someone who has done something worse. Listen, everything needs to be repented for, but Jesus can save anyone, redeem anyone from anything at any time. That's the power of God. We've been acquitted. He's throwing, repent. And I'm going to give you the imperishable bread of life. And I'm also going to acquit you. I'm going to throw the white stone. And I'm going to give you a new name. I love the names of the kids that they have in Uganda as we travel over there. They have people, they name their kids like Patience. Right? And I just Patience. You just go, oh really? You just named your kid Patience? That's, and you just start thinking about it. And they have a ton of Emmanuels. And they, they name their kids after these traits that they desire their kids to have, really. And here's what he's coming, he's saying, with a new name written on the stone, he's going to give you a new name. He's going to give you a new name. Listen, that you're, how people think of you, your name's important. God named several of the patriarchs. That's why you look at Abram to Abraham, right? You get Jacob to Israel. Reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old's gone, the new has come. What we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to acknowledge that in our own life, maybe we have some slippery slopes here and there that we need to say, wait a second, am, am I giving too much attention, too much authority to this? Has it become an idol? Has it become a false god? Anything that you are giving more attention than Jesus Christ is wrong. Anything that you are giving a greater value than Jesus Christ for throwing that white stone is sinful. Here's what I like to do. I'd like to invite Nathan to go ahead and come forward. And we're going to have this morning an opportunity to share in communion. And he's going to play and sing a song for you as you take communion this morning. And I I know it's two things at once, but you're multitaskers. I'm going to invite you. There's five different stations you can go and you can take communion. And you can just, as soon as you go up there, you can go ahead and take the bread, uh, and then, which represents the body of Christ given in sacrifice for you. And then you can take the, the juice, which is symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed for you. And it's symbolic for us here at this church, but it's important to acknowledge that because we do this in remembrance of him. He says to do that very thing. And so in a moment, as you're going to be able to go to each of these places, you're going to be sharing this, I really want you to pay attention to these words. Because the only way that this message does not impact you somehow is if you're walking out of this place just going, I don't need any help. That's the only way. You think you've got it. You're, You're the full deal. You're the full package. You're good. Like, you're basically telling God, God, don't you know that I'm all that? That's what you're doing. That's the only way that this message to Pergamum doesn't hit you a little bit and go, man, I have constructed and built so many idols and and places of worship in my life that aren't to Jesus. And we have. And so, the name of the song is called Clear the Stage, but it's all about the idols that we can have in our life. And coming before him and just worshiping. And so, God, I come before you. And I ask that we would be willing to acknowledge that we become what we love the most. That we would acknowledge that some of us have become more like the, the idols that we worship than we have become like you. We have no problem wearing boldly the logos for all types of companies and teams. And yet we are ashamed to even say that maybe we're a disciple. Maybe because we have false gods in our lives. Maybe it's because we don't recognize that we need saving and that you have done that for us. And so, Lord, I I just ask that we have the courage to acknowledge that some of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That some of us really think that maybe maybe you're not the, the answer in the way maybe we are.
Forgive us, God. May we acknowledge the idols in our lives, surrender them to you. Amen. We'd like to invite you just to go ahead and as you feel led, uh, you might want to sit and listen for a while, but um, as you feel led, you're going to also have some of the elders standing beside these as well. So there's multiple places that you can go. You can go to one of the individuals who's standing there or to the table itself. You don't have to be a member of this church. We just ask that you truly be a believer in Jesus Christ, though, as you participate in sharing in communion, that you really acknowledge and have given him authority for your life.